0: Welcome to Mind the Gaps, a Women, Peace and Security podcast. On this podcast, we explore the world of Women, Peace and Security, or WPS, through speaking to experts and practitioners from around the world, working under the umbrella of WPS. My name is Eva Tabassum, and I'm the Director of Gender Action for Peace and Security, also known as GAPS. Join us as we release a new episode bi-weekly focusing on another important aspect of the WPS agenda where I will be speaking to some brilliant guests who will share their takes and recommendations on this important topic. Welcome back to Mind the Gaps, a Women, Peace and Security podcast. This week, we'll be discussing the domestic implementation of WPS. Gaps has been calling for the domestication of the WPS agenda in the UK and globally for a very long time. Many women, peace and security actors, particularly states located in the global north, have been heavily critiqued for their approach to women, peace and security. That is often outward facing, focusing on conflict affected priority countries in the global south. When we see women, peace and security being exported through humanitarian development or peacekeeping interventions, A call for the domestic implementation of Women, Peace and Security argues that states must apply their principles and commitments at and within their borders, as well as in their work overseas, ensuring policy coherence and consistency across both foreign and domestic policy. In the case of the UK, there have been some very limited elements of domestic implementations in the last 20 years. However, the UK's fifth National Action Plan that was recently launched in 2023, follows the example of other countries such as Canada, Germany and Norway as well as Ireland and takes substantive steps towards integrating a domestic approach. The NAP features holistic commitments to address violence against women and girls, the recognition of the role of women in the peace building in Northern Ireland and for the first time joint implementation of the NAP between the FCDO, the Ministry of Defence, the Home Office as well as the Ministry of Justice and devolved administrations. Despite this progress, there are still limitations to the UK's domestic approach, particularly in relation to both Northern Ireland and the rights of refugee and asylum-seeking and migrant women. So I'm thrilled today to have two brilliant guests joining me to discuss Northern Ireland and refugee and asylum-seeking and migrant women's rights in the context of Women, Peace and Security. Firstly, we have Dr Catherine Turner, an Associate Professor of International Law and Deputy Director of the Durham Global Security Institute. Her work sits at the intersection of international law and global policy in the field of international peace and security. She has a particular interest in peace mediation as a tool for the prevention, management and resolution of armed conflict. She's also published extensively in the fields of peace mediation and transitional justice, focusing on promoting more inclusive approaches to peace and justice in her home, Northern Ireland and internationally. We also have Priscilla Duthea, currently the Campaigns and Advocacy Manager at Women for Refugee for Women. Priscilla previously worked in a policy role for St Andrews Refugee Service in Cairo, advocating for the rights of vulnerable refugees and asylum seekers from across Africa and the Middle East. Prior to this, she worked as a Senior Legal Officer for the organisation representing asylum seekers in UNHCR refugee status determination and protection processes. It was her experience at St Andrews that encouraged Priscilla to return to the UK and contribute to the rights of women asylum seekers here. We're first now going to turn to Catherine to discuss the case of Northern Ireland and the inclusion of the Northern Ireland office as a joint owner of the new Women, Peace and Security Network. And as well as discuss the commitment to recognise and promote the work of women peacebuilders in Northern Ireland, that has been very much welcomed. However, what these commitments look like in practice, particularly in relation to women's participation, is yet to be established. And civil society in Northern Ireland have highlighted the need for the Women, Peace and Security agenda to respond to the daily realities of women affected by the ongoing dynamics of insecurity and patriarchal social norms. Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us on this podcast. I'll go straight into it. So what are your reflections on the progress made on Northern Ireland in the new Women, Peace and Security NAP?
1: Well, thanks very much, Eva, for having me to talk about this. It's interesting to see in the NAP this time that there has been some element of inclusion and recognition of, you know, first of all, a domestic um, element to the NAP, um, but one that specifically includes Northern Ireland. I mean, as you know, there's been uh, campaigning for a long time to try and have it uh, extended to Northern Ireland, really in in recognition of the the circumstances there and and the sort of many ways in which uh, a Women, Peace and Security lens would have helped with the work um, of the women's sector in Northern Ireland. Uh, But I think what we're seeing this time is a slightly different approach that has been taken in that we've got a domestication angle to the NAP that is um, applied on a UK-wide basis that has allowed us to bring Northern Ireland within the scope of the National Action Plan without necessarily treating it as an exceptional case. And so I think what's interesting then is is that uh, sort of the the step in into Northern Ireland is recognising that Northern Ireland experiences challenges that are the same as those faced in the rest of the UK when it comes to women, peace and security, and that the NAP would be a way of addressing this through a domestication approach. So I think what's particularly interesting is the lens of violence against women and girls that has been applied uh, throughout the NAP. There's an ambition in there to take, I think, a holistic approach to the way we think about women, peace and security, uh, and think about how it might apply domestically. And we're seeing, particularly with the inclusion of the Home Office, as well as the Northern Ireland Office in the NAP, a focus on challenges that apply quite broadly. So trafficking um, in women and girls uh, is one, for example. And the other big one being violence and harassment against women in politics and in public life, which is a particular problem across the whole of the UK, um, but which applies in, in Northern Ireland as well. So I think taking this particular lens and saying, well, there are things that we can learn from Women, Peace and Security, and there's also learning that we have that we can bring to the Women, Peace and Security agenda more broadly, has allowed this broad frame to be applied to include Northern Ireland within the, the scope of the NAP in, in the first place. And I think it's a you know it's a good first step because if we apply a women, peace and security lens to these challenges on a UK basis. What that should do then is to reveal some of the context specific challenges that do come from the differences in Northern Ireland. So, for example, the role of paramilitary organisations in trafficking of women and girls, for example, and that should highlight then to government where perhaps more attention is needed to these issues from a women, peace and security perspective.
0: Thanks so much. And just specifically about the approach that they've taken in terms of getting Northern Ireland in the National Action Plan. Can we talk a little bit about that and your role specifically? I'm thinking about the paper that we did as part of the Women, Peace and Security Help Desk and, and why this angle using the Vogue lens has been an entry point rather than previous entry points that we've getting Northern Ireland in the National Action Plan.
1: Well, as I said, I think that it's just it's a reframing. It's approaching the question from a different perspective. And I mean, for some, this will be an abdication um, of responsibility and in respect of Northern Ireland you know that there are clearly much bigger and and more diverse women, peace and security challenges that need to be addressed in Northern Ireland. This particular NAP doesn't, but I think what it does do is to recognise that there are some ways in which it, it applies and that it can be useful on the whole of the UK basis that starts us thinking about that. And I think that the value in that is that the political sensitivities that have come with trying to have it applied in Northern Ireland um, are largely avoided if we adopt this particular approach. And I think because there are some challenges that are experienced particularly by women in public life in Northern Ireland um, on a a cross-party, cross-religion, kind of cross-political divisions basis. They're experienced by women as women. And that's been quite a powerful platform for women starting to think about how women, peace and security could be used um, as a framework to address this. And I think we're starting to see that perhaps in, in this NAP.
0: Thanks, Catherine. So can you just talk a little bit about the approach they have taken in the domestication of the Fifth NAP, specifically in regards to the Northern Ireland strategy on ending violence against women?
1: Yeah, so this is a very welcome, I think, inclusion in the National Action Plan. Northern Ireland is, I think, the only part of the UK that doesn't have a specific violence against women and girls strategy. And it's been a particular struggle um, in Northern Ireland to have uh, recognised and remedied because of a quite determined approach to gender neutral policymaking in Northern Ireland, um, arising from some of the interpretations of of the equality provisions of the agreement. And so the women's sector has been pushing for a long time for a a strategy on violence uh, against women and girls in Northern Ireland. And in recent years, before the most recent collapse of the Assembly, uh, good progress had been being made on that strategy um, through the Department of Justice. So to see it included in, in the NAP is interesting. And I think that there's a lot of potential here and, and maybe more potential than it seems from sort of the first reading of the strategic objective. Because as I said, the NAP in its overall framing has the noun of, of sort of taking a, a holistic approach to the pillars and to recognise the cross-cutting nature of a lot of the challenges of uh, women, peace and security. And so... The strategic objectives themselves are more or less divided along a sort of pillar-specific approach, so participation and and, uh, gender-based violence being separated out. But the actual plan itself recognises quite clearly the relationship between these two pillars, the impact, for example, of threats against women on their participation and their willingness to participate in, in public life and politics on the one hand. And then our section on transnational threats also recognises the challenge of cyber, for example, and the uh, abuse of women in online spaces and the ways in which that perpetuates and even exacerbates gender based violence um, in these contexts. And so I think a really innovative way of approaching this strategic objective that the Northern Ireland office has been charged with would be to take this intersectional approach and, and to look at what does it mean to be a woman in public life in Northern Ireland? You know, and that encompasses women from politicians and, and the elected representative, right down to the women leaders in, in the community sector and in the women's sector, who are really doing a lot of the work on this. And this is something that I know the Northern the all party group on 1325 has been considering, and that a number of the politicians themselves think would be quite keen to see progressed. So I think it's a, it offers quite a lot of opportunity to think in really innovative terms about the connections between the challenges. So, on participation on protection and on transnational threats and how this could be brought together in really a world-leading strategy on violence against women and girls that recognizes the impact of gender-based violence and uh, gendered attitudes on women's participation and and how those are how those are enabled uh, by modern threats um, and modern uh, tools like cyber and, and online environments
0: thanks catherine um I really like the way you've weaved that throughout all the rest of the strategic objectives in the National Action Plan. And even though that's not necessarily pictured like that in the NAP, it's definitely something that they can consider when they think about implementing that delivery plan. I wondered if, if there is anything else that you would have liked to have seen in terms of domestic implementation of the NAP in relation to Northern Ireland?
1: Well, it's good to see sort of continuation of the recognition of the work that women peacebuilders have done and, and been doing in Northern Ireland. Uh, I know that has carried through from the last nap into, into this one and is specifically referenced again. Although it's I mean, I think it would be nice to see at this point a little bit more commitment around what that might look like. So our strategic objective this time is, you know, sort of to recognize the work of women peace builders, but it's put in the context of the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and the celebrations around that agreement. You know, which potentially can limit to a fairly backward looking focus, you know, so that we continue to celebrate what was done and what was achieved by the women um, at that particular time without placing any responsibility within the NAP to look at what women need now. What is it that women peace builders in Northern Ireland are identifying as the challenges to being able to carry out their work effectively? And what are some of the things that they are asking to be looked at now. So for example, the tackling paramilitarism strategy, the absence of strong core funding for women's organizations, and indeed the gender neutral policy making, for example, all of which are being highlighted as ongoing problems for the women's sector in being able to really deliver on their work, and particularly around peace building. And so it would be interesting to see a bit more detail about how through this NAP, these efforts could be supported now rather than with a backward looking lens.
0: Now I'm going to turn to Priscilla and the question of if those countries who have committed to the Women, Peace and Security agenda meet the needs and rights of the refugee, asylum seeking and migrant women and girls. Although the UK NAP and previous National Action Plans discuss and make commitments to the protection and rights of women and girls in conflict and displacement settings, the UK's new NAP on Women, Peace and Security does not comprehensively address wider issues of protecting refugee, asylum seeking and migrant women and girls. At and within its own borders. Furthermore, the wider policy context in the UK, which includes the compliant environment, which is known as the hostile environment, the two tier asylum system, the Rwanda plan, reservation to Article 59 of the Istanbul Convention, the detention of women and girls who are survivors of GBV. And the restrictions to family reunification are all in direct opposition to the work that the UK is doing on the WPS agenda as well as the PSVI agenda. The recently announced illegal migration bill also further criminalises those seeking sanctuary in the UK and those who are forced to travel through illegal and dangerous routes because there are no safe alternatives. Of all the focus countries in the National Action Plan, none except for Ukraine have a safe route of seeking asylum. And while for Afghanistan, we have the ARAP, which is the Afghan Relocations and Assistance Policy, as well as the ACRS scheme, which is the Afghan Citizen Resettlement Scheme. Both are extremely limited or closed. Thank you, Priscilla, so much for joining us. Can you tell me about the situation for refugee asylum seeking and migrant women in the UK right now? Hi, thanks, Eva.
2: Thanks so much for having me on here. Where to start from, really? The situation for asylum seeking women, which is what I'll be focusing on in this podcast, is dire, quite frankly. So, just by way of background, Women for Refugee Women works with women seeking asylum. So, these are women who've crossed borders to save their lives, basically, fleeing persecution. Now, the government doesn't collect uh, or share, anyway, statistics on the sorts of persecution that women are escaping. But we know from our work, you know, and for, from lots of research projects that we've done over the years, that many of the women who are coming here have fled a form of gender based abuse. Just by way of example, in our 2020 research project, we found that about 78% of the women we spoke to had suffered a form of gender-based abuse. So we're talking rape, forced marriage, forced prostitution, female genital mutilation and other forms of sexual abuse. And our asylum system, sadly, in a nutshell, doesn't help these women. It doesn't help the survivors of of gender-based violence to access safety and, and to live in dignity. In fact, I would say that it actively harms and we traumatizes them, and I'm very happy to sort of tell you more about the particular challenges that that those women face. Could you
0: please elaborate on the particular challenges and the barriers?
2: yeah, sure, so I think not I think i mean no a major challenge is definitely that of disbelief. You know we know not just from research that women for refugee women has done, but also other organizations over many years. Also recently, the you know that the Windrush inquiry that there's a disbelief, unfortunately, that sits at the heart of Home Office decision making, and you know women seeking asylum have tended to suffer from that. We have seen throughout the years that women, you know, including survivors of gender-based abuse, are often wrongly refused asylum. Now, of course, you know the particular forms of violence that they suffer from. You know, there are difficulties in, in, in evidencing in that in evidencing that and there's also uh, issues with accessing quality legal representation but most significantly the reason why women's asylum claims are refused is because of this culture of disbelief you know which means that women's experiences of, of persecution are basically being routinely dismissed by decision makers so just to sort of give you one example from recent piece of research we did, the first piece of research by Women for Refugee Women and and Rainbow Sisters on the specific experiences of lesbian and bisexual women going through the asylum. Now, in that research project of the 11 women who disclosed their sexuality to the Home Office when they first applied for asylum. All of them were, you know, refused. And in the majority of cases, the Home Office just did not believe their their sexual orientation. So this is the sort of thing that we've, we've seen routinely over the years. And of course, you know, when women's claims are refused, they are made destitute. So they're stripped of government support and housing. And unsurprisingly, that exposes them to further gendered violence, including sexual assault and domestic violence. And again, from, you know, our 2020 research, we found that that research specifically focused on the experiences of of women when they become destitute. We found that a third of women who had fled gender based violence in their countries of origin were subjected again to rape another form of sexual abuse after they were made destitute in the UK so yeah there's clear re-traumatization that is happening there and of course there's there's detention and the harms of that to women obviously being locked up indefinitely being deprived of your liberty is, is distressing and harmful for anyone but it can be particularly harmful to women who've survived sexual and gender-based abuse. Women can be locked up you know, at, at any point during their asylum journey, but if you've been refused asylum, you're at a particular risk. So those are sort of the main things I would say, disbelief, destitution, detention. But instead of addressing the harms of the system, it's really not a stretch to say that our, our government is determined to make them even worse and we can see that so clearly with the nationality and borders act and of course now the illegal migration bill that's that's going through parliament
0: i'm quite horrified by those statistics and and also so for gaps you know we work on the Women, peace and security agenda as you know and the agenda the uk is championing women and girls rights and then you hear these statistics what's happening and within the borders of the UK and how it completely undermines the work that they're or the rights that they're advocating for women and girls abroad. So given that sort of context, what do you think the policy environment in terms of the domestic environment in the UK, how that's very much in opposition to the UK's commitments towards the WPS agenda? And I'm thinking specifically about, for example, the PSVI conference that happened in November last year and the parallel campaign that that yourself as part of the Sister Not Strangers Coalition had, you know, the hashtag We Are Survivors Too, encountering the UK governments for survivors with survivors. Could you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the policy environment, you know, specifically to do with asylum seeking people and asylum seeking women, it's it's increasingly cruel, it's increasingly lawless and and it's increasingly incompliant with the government's domestic and international commitments on addressing violence against women and girls as you mentioned back in november we women for refugee women and other members of the sisters not strangers coalition use this opportunity to you know to call out the the government's hypocrisy we've got a government that that's stating that protecting, uh, putting women and girls to safety, just, you know, having looked at the WPS agenda is like protection is one of the four pillars. One of the strategic objectives is preventing gender-based violence and ensuring that, you know, supporting survivors to cope and recover and and seek justice is is prioritised. But then at the same time, you know, those commitments or all that, that work, you know, that's going on that, undoubtedly is important, is wholly incompatible with the serious harms that the UK's asylum system is inflicting on survivors of sexual violence. You know, we know, as I said from our work, that, you know, so many survivors who come to this country having fled sexual and gender-based violence, including violence that they suffered during conflict, just don't get the protection that they are Entitled to, you know, by virtue of the Refugee Convention. And not only that, you know, they are re traumatized and face further violence and abuse. As I said, that, you know, it's often as a result of of destitution when their claims are wrongly refused. And, you know, these harms have been highlighted in such detail, you know, including through research. But instead, you know, we have a government that is sort of continuing to churn out cruel legislation that is in opposition to these, you know, VORG commitments. The Nationality and Borders Act, for instance, there was overwhelming opposition from women's groups and gender experts, including the UN Special Rapporteur on, on Violence Against Women and Girls, who spoke out about, you know, the, the risk that survivors would, would face of suffering further violence and abuse as a result of these changes. And so, yes, as I say, this conference we very much the coalition very much used the opportunity of the conference to yeah you know obviously to stand in solidarity with all the survivors who were attending that conference and to help the government do that vital work but also you know just to really speak up and remind the government that you know if you are genuine about supporting survivors there's other stuff that you need to do you know if you are Genuine about addressing violence against women and girls, if you genuinely want to fulfill that WPS agenda, you need to scrap harmful harmful asylum policies at home, which obviously includes the Nationality and Borders Act. You need to make sure that asylum seeking women are included in efforts to tackle violence against women and girls. I've seen in the WPS agenda, for instance, that, you know, there's a commitment to involve women in in decision making, I I think it is, and, you know, have a survivor-centered approach. Yet we're constantly seeing from our government just blatantly ignoring actually people with lived experience, including women. So you know, when we had the Nationality and Borders Bill, or rather the new plan for immigration, there was a consultation process which was just a farce, essentially, you know, women with lived experience and others going through the asylum system weren't able to access that consultation. They weren't meaningfully able to to share their their voices. And all of this was raised, of course, to the government who just pressed along, really, with with that awful legislation. So, yeah, we need to make sure that asylum-seeking women are, you know, are are listened to and, and are included in efforts to reform the asylum system, but also tackle violence against women and girls. So that's what our statement was about, really. And yeah, we were using the hashtag we are survivors too to sort of respond to the government's hashtag, which was for Survivors Would Survive. And we're pleased to say that we had about 42 organisations across the violence against women and girls sector. We're very grateful to GAPS as well for your support signing that, that statement
0: no of course anything we can do to support and and we agree with you I mean it was complete hypocrisy I mean there was complete exclusion of those who are going you know like you said all the women that you've mentioned and all the research that you did in 2020 I mean completely you know it completely in opposition to the work and to the to the rhetoric the UK government was using at this conference and you know when we talk about survivor-centered approach and you know try to make this conference a survivor-centered approach and they were centering survivors but they completely I mean they do not do that at all in terms of the asylum process or system within the home office I mean like you said is it just Willful. Is it just that they just don't want to interact with us at all because there's this government agenda of reducing net migration and that's it, you know, at the end of the day? It really is. I mean, it's something that GAPS is really trying to work hard on is making sure. And now, you know, you mentioned the National Action Plan. There is for the first time Mm -hmm. the Home Office being named as a delivery partner on certain activities you know for us we see that as an entry point to you know really get the UK to I mean it's very wishful thinking but really get them to start thinking about their matching their international work on WPS to at home to the domestic side and you know also kind of thinking about the WPS advocates the practitioners specifically those that work in the UK to also consider working with domestic or supporting organizations like yourself Because if we're not doing that, then we're almost enabling the UK government to do what they are doing with, you know, criminalising those. So I guess on that question, you know, what would you like to see in terms of support or solidarity or advocacy in supporting the work that you're doing from, I mean, WPS Active Advocates? You've given us some really helpful recommendations for the UK about really rethinking what they're doing. But for us, for those in this sector... I think what you've suggested is is absolutely
2: right in the sense that, you know, there does need to be we essentially need greater coherence, don't we, between foreign policy and practice and the, the domestic domestic policies and, and practice when it comes to survivors of, of of sexual violence and addressing violence against women and in girls in general. And I think, you know, just um greater collaboration you know, with organisations that are working towards the WPS agenda, ensuring that, you know, that asylum-seeking and refugee women are, their voices, their experiences are included in those efforts, you know, to bring about that coherence is really, really important. And, you know, specifically, I think, you know, we need to see more parliamentarians from across the House who are, uh, you know, speaking up for asylum-seeking women, particularly, I mean, parliamentarians, I'm thinking, you know, who are really engaged in WPS and and sexual violence and conflict or just that sort of international work that we do for women and girls. We need the solidarity of those parliamentarians now, you know, more than ever, so that we can ensure that some of the most vulnerable survivors are are not harmed and, and turned away. I'm really sort of pleased to to say that during the last couple of years, there's been incredible solidarity that's been shown by organisations in the violence against women and girls sector, um, you know, for the work that Women for Refugee Women is doing and, and the plight of of asylum seeking women. And, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to do, which is very much, um, yeah, it's a journey, what is work that that is really ongoing is sort of get rid of this distinction that exists, which is between sort of violence against women and girls and the asylum and and people who are subjected to the asylum process. Like, you know, if you look at the government's um, strategy on violence against women and girls, there's absolutely no mention there of asylum seeking and, and refugee women. It sort of includes... You know, it does speak about migrant survivors, and we know that there's been, you know, some important gains. But asylum-seeking and refugee women are are not seen as a VORG issue, is is what I'm trying to say. But we're very much trying to work with the sector to get rid of that distinction and to encourage, you know, the the safeguarding minister, for instance, and you know, and and other um, officials who work on VOB in the Home Office to also ensure that violence against asylum-seeking women is also part of those efforts to tackle vogue. So yeah, I think, you know, just greater solidarity, um, greater collaboration with anyone, you know, who's working on gender-based violence sort of issues is is really, really needed at this time and would be hugely welcomed.
0: Yeah, I, I can agree more with you. And I think that like, I think we need to stop working in silos. And I think we need to think about when things happen across borders within borders and and if we don't and we don't reflect and we don't try and extend kind of look at things holistically then like you know like I said I think we're enabling the government to really discriminate and pick and choose from the agendas right pick and choose when they feel it's right and appropriate for them so no I completely agree with you and, and and we definitely will continue to support and make sure that you know, as we monitor and, um, you know, work as the critical friend with the UK government on this NAP, Women, Peace and Security commitments, that we'll also make sure that we continue to advocate, as we've done before, around these issues. Thank you so much, Priscilla. This was really, really great. And and I really hope that, you know, this is a a step in the kind of next five-year period of the NAP that we continue to, you know, push for the Home Office to get rid of its harmful and discriminatory practice against refugee and asylum-seeking women. So thanks so much. Yeah.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you so much for listening to Mind the Gaps, a women, peace and security podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode and hope you listen to our next episode, which will be released in two weeks' time. If you found the episode interesting, please do share with your colleagues and networks and feel free to subscribe and review the podcast on whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at infogaps uk.org. You can find out more about GAPS's work and our future plans on our Twitter at GAPS underscore network and by signing up to our monthly newsletter on our website. This podcast is made through the support of the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs through their funding of the Leap for Peace consortium, which GAPS is a member of. The podcast is hosted by Eva Tabassam and is written, produced and edited by Florence Wallachar and supported by the GAPS team. Our thanks also to Andrew O'Connor at Safer World for the technical support and to Jimena Duran at NAMD, who are the consortium lead for Leap for Peace. We look forward to our next episode and to you joining us then.